0: Hello, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I am honoured to be in dialogue today with Ian Campbell. He is an independent scholar and international consultant. We are here today to discuss his book, The Addis Ababa Massacre, Italy's National Shame, published by Hearst 2017. Ian, I could not be more grateful to be in communication with you today. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: To begin, uh, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And were there any formative events in your life that inspired you to become a scholar of history in general and a scholar of Ethiopia in this period of time in particular?
1: Yes, I was born in the small Fenland English town of Wisbeach in Cambridgeshire. My father was a school teacher. My mother had come from London. I grew up in Wisbeach and I attended the ancient Wisbeach Grammar School, which is a 14th century grammar school, which to my knowledge has never has been operating since the 14th century without a break. So, as you can imagine, it was a fairly traditional English grammar school. Uh, At the school, uh, in those days, you were either regarded as a science person or you were regarded as an arts person. There wasn't a great choice of subjects. By the time you were a teenager, you were either doing mathematics, physics, and chemistry, or you were doing English and French and Latin. Uh, I tended to have a, a foot in both camps. I was good at some art subjects, and I was equally good at some science subjects. But probably because my father was a mathematician, I chose the science subjects. But I still retained a lot of interest in art and in history, even though I went on to become a mathematician. So I went to university at the University of Leicester in England where I studied economics, mathematics, and statistics. At the same time, I was director of the University Arts Festival. So again, I I retained this uh, sort of multidisciplinary approach, which has stayed with me for all my life. And now I'm, I'm an economist specializing in environmental and social impact assessment, but I'm also a historian. So that I still have a foot in both camps.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: Well, that's a very good question because uh, nothing really inspired me to write the book. It's uh, very interesting how it came about. It came about because I was actually studying a related subject which was The plot behind the attack on Rodolfo Graziani, who was Mussolini's uh, head of government administration in occupied Ethiopia, that was a great mystery to me as to who had attacked Graziani because it triggered this enormous massacre in February of 1937. I spent many years trying to find out, mainly from elderly people, what exactly had happened in 1937 and who had plotted this attack on the Italian high command. Now, in the process of doing all that research, incidentally, I collected a great deal of information on the massacre that followed the attack, although that was not the purpose of my research. The purpose of my research, as I've said, was to find out who was behind this plot, which really intrigued me, to think that in occupied Ethiopia there was a resistance movement, rather like the French resistance during German-occupied France, that could plot such a complex attack on the Italian high command. So when I had completed my research, which actually took me 20 years uh, in the plot to kill Graziani, I found that I had a great deal of supplementary ancillary information on the massacre itself, which in fact I discovered had never been documented. So after producing The first book on the plot or the conspiracy, which was more of a a sort of story, really, I found I'd got so much information that I could actually piece together what happened in this massacre, which no one had ever done before. We just knew that there was a massacre and there was a great deal of debate about how many people were killed. Was it 300? Was it 6,000? Was it 30,000, as the Ethiopian government claimed? So I was encouraged by my friend and mentor, who was principally uh, Professor Richard Pankhurst, who had a great deal of influence on my uh, research into Ethiopian history. He encouraged me to put this information together to compile it into a book which I eventually did. Uh, And that is how the book came about.
0: What makes the Addis Ababa massacre worthy of the specific attention that your book pays to it in focusing on it, rather than other aspects of Italy's invasion of Ethiopia, such as its concentration camps and such as other massacres that took place during the occupation?
1: The, the fact is that the story of the concentration camps during the Italian occupation of Ethiopia is actually equally unknown, in fact more unknown even, than the massacre of Addis Ababa. But the reason I focused on the massacre was that, as I've explained, that was the information that I had collected although not purposefully, but nonetheless I had collected it, and I realized that that it needed to be published. Actually, I am looking into the concentration camps, which almost nobody knows anything about in Ethiopia, although I haven't yet collected enough information for a book, but it is one of the subjects that I'm working on, certainly to write uh, Perhaps an academic paper on. Uh, It's almost unknown that there were concentration camps in Ethiopia. Some were in the vicinities of the major towns. One very notorious concentration camp was in Italian Somaliland called uh, Danane. And I was fortunate to meet and talk on many occasions to two or three people who had been interned in Danane concentration camp. There was also another concentration camp at Nokra, uh, which is on one of the islands in the Red Sea, which is a, a, a particularly awful concentration camp with a very, very high death rate. So, yes. It's not that the massacre was necessarily more important to me, but I came to realise that these concentration camps did exist. However, by the time I realised that they existed, some of the people who had been interned in these camps actually passed away. So the number of uh, witnesses that I could talk to now would be very few indeed who could shed further light on these camps. Nonetheless, it, it, it although it's a bit on the back burner, it is one of the, the projects in my pipeline.
0: Can you describe the different phases of the Addis Ababa Massacre as it unfolded?
1: Yes. There were, in fact, distinct phases of the Addis Ababa Massacre. Uh, it, it was not just a single event that occurred and then came to an end. What happened was that the first phase of the massacre occurred on the spot when a number of uh, Ethiopians and Eritreans threw hand grenades at the Italian high command at a public event outside the front of the palace which the Italians had commandeered all of the Ethiopians, with very few exceptions, were shot or killed with uh, crude weapons on the spur of the moment. Graziani was attacked, he was seriously injured, and he was rushed to hospital. The Italians had been expecting trouble at this particular event. They'd heard through their spies, that there could be trouble. And they knew that there were armed patriots, not very far from Addis Ababa, and they were afraid that they might strike. So their first reaction when this attack was made, was to open up the two machine guns, which they had set facing the Ethiopian crowd from a balcony of the palace. Those machine guns opened up and continued shooting for a very long time. The Italians who were present in the uh, entourage of uh, Marshal Rodolfo Graziani and the Italian civilians who were present were absolutely terrified. They thought that they were going to be attacked. So this was uh, something that was uh, not planned but it was anticipated that there could be trouble. So almost all the 3,000 Ethiopians who were for the most part elderly priests, uh, single single women with babies and the disabled were killed. There was an absolute bloodbath from 12 noon until mid-afternoon. 3,000 people died in the palace grounds. You can visit these palace grounds. This palace is now the principal office of the University of Addis Ababa. As soon as that happened, and the alarm was sounded, and the gates were flung closed, the air force came up from what is now the Menelik Second School on foot, running up to the palace to see what was happening. This was according to a a laid down plan that if the palace was ever attacked, certain steps would be taken. The gates would be closed so no one could escape. The air force would come up and the black shirts would approach the palace from their garrison, which was only about a kilometer away. And they flung a security cordon about 400 meters, uh, 400 meters radius around the palace. And everyone within that security cordon that was Ethiopian was attacked, and most of them were killed. That became the second phase of what we call the massacre of Addis Ababa. After that, a curfew was enforced in Addis Ababa. So no Ethiopians were allowed on the streets. And at that point, the Italians started going round house to house and collecting all the men, young men, and all the men apart from the elderly were rounded up into makeshift prisons. Again, this was according to a security plan that would be put into action if there was any attack on the Italian high command. Then, as it was getting dark, and it gets dark very early in Addis Ababa, because it's not very far from the equator, at about six o'clock, a meeting, a public meeting was held in the town centre, which all party members, that is, members of the fascist, party were to attend the black shirts who were of course the volunteer uh, 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 paramilitary force of the party all attended this meeting and they were instructed to go and set fire to the houses of the Ethiopians throughout Addis Ababa and do anything they wanted to To the Ethiopians for three days, which was, if you like, a medieval crusader action that would have been taken in the days of the Crusades when a city uh, refused to be invaded, when a city put up resistance to invasion, there would be massacres for three days. The areas of the city which were exempted from the massacre were, were announced to the black shirts. There were certain areas which were important to the Italians, where they had their administrative offices, for example, where the Air Force was located, where the black shirts were located, and where the army had its principal head office, which was in the old palace of Emperor Menelik, were all exempted. So, there was a very clear delineation as to which parts of the city were to be attacked and which parts of the city were not to be attacked. And the black shirts were provided with vehicles. The vehicles were actually controlled by the regular army, who were recruits. The black shirts were volunteers. So, the black shirts went in the military vehicles and spread out over the city and began to attack the Ethiopians. That became the the further phase of the massacre, in which most of the people who died in the massacre were killed. Over the next three nights, this uh, killing and burning was resumed. So the first night was a Friday night, Friday the 19th of February, 1937. The second day was the Saturday night. The third day was the Sunday night. And it wasn't until Monday or Tuesday that most people were then allowed to start circulating in the city. The total number of people killed in all these phases, I've estimated at between 19 and 20,000 which is approximately 20% of the Ethiopian population of Addis Ababa at that time. Where do you
0: situate your book vis-a-vis current scholarship on this period of Ethiopia's history and on referring to Italy's invasion of Ethiopia? Where do you situate your book amid current or previous research on this topic?
1: Sorry, I'm not sure if I caught that question. Could you ask the question again?
0: Where do you situate your book vis-à-vis current oh, scholarship on yes. Italy's invasion of Ethiopia?
1: <clears throat> yes, that's, that's another very interesting question. And it's interesting because almost all of the books on the Italian invasion of Ethiopia have been focused on the invasion, which is, which is as one might expect partly because most of the people who would write such books would be military people who were basically writing a military history. So most of the books that have been written have focused on the military activities between October 1935 and May 1936, when Mussolini said that the war was over. Then everybody was interested in what was going on in the civil war in Spain. And many of the black shirts in Ethiopia were then shipped to Spain. Now, from May 1936 up until 1941 is the occupation. There's been far less scholarly research into what happened during the occupation. The next uh, heavily documented period was the War of Liberation, which the British and the Ethiopians were involved in when the Italians were expelled from Ethiopia in 1941. So my book is one of the very few books which focuses just on events that took place during the occupation as opposed to the 90% of books which are on the military activities of the invasion and the war of liberation. So, therefore, the answer to your question is that it it really is one of, uh, well, I've done now four books on the subject of the occupation, and those four represent a major portion of the research that has been conducted by anybody into the occupation. Most of the the writings on the fighting of the patriots who put up the resistance to the Italians, much of that has been written up uh, in the form of autobiographies, short accounts, by elderly patriots and have been written in Amharic and are not known to international scholarship. So the four books that I've written to date uh, represent a major uh, portion of the research that's been conducted.
0: How do you account for this relative silence in academic scholarship and discourse regarding Italy's atrocities in Ethiopia? How do you account for the silence in general? How do you account for the silence relative to the amount of attention devoted to studying the Holocaust, to the popularity of the study of the Spanish Civil War? Why is less attention paid to the Ethiopian tragedy?
1: Yeah, there are a number of reasons why the the, the events of the Italian occupation of Ethiopia are so little known, as you say compared to the events that occurred in Europe. One reason, of course, is that Europeans are interested in what happens in Europe, and they are less interested in what happens elsewhere. And that—that that is as one would expect, that, that's not a criticism. You don't expect most Ethiopians to know, uh, most Europeans, to know very much about the Japanese invasion of China, for example, that occurred in the early 1930s. The Europeans regard the Second World War as starting in September 1939. The Ethiopians regard the Second World War as starting in October 1935. The the Chinese regard the Second World War as starting much earlier than that with the invasion of Manchuria. So that's, that's one of the reasons. But there's also another very major reason which is that there is very little known about the Italian occupation of Ethiopia. And the reason that there's very little known is that when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia, the British government was adopting a policy of appeasement to Mussolini. They thought that if they didn't complain about what Mussolini was doing, and he was breaking the laws, of course, of the League of Nations by his invasion of Ethiopia, he would be less inclined to join hands with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. It was a mistaken policy, as it turned out, but it was a policy of appeasement, and the British were not uh, not about to start criticising what the Italians were doing. Now, having said that, we reach a point where Mussolini joins forces with Adolf Hitler in the Axis, sometime after the beginning of the Second World War. So you might think that at that point, the British and the Americans would be very pleased to expose the horrors of the Italian occupation of Ethiopia. But you see Italy changed sides. In 1943, when it was was clear to most observers that the Germans were going to lose the war, Italy surrendered to the Allies. So Italy then became a partner of Britain and America. And in doing so, of course, uh, Britain were not interested in exposing what the Italians had been up to in Ethiopia. They wanted to. They wanted Badoglio, who was now Prime Minister of Italy, to uh, to defend Europe against the rising threat of communism, for example. So Churchill had every reason to keep quiet about what the Italians had done in Ethiopia. And when the Ethiopians attempted to submit evidence for the United Nations war crimes trials of the Italians, at the same time as evidence was being submitted for the war crimes trials of Germans and Japanese, Britain obstructed that process because Britain wanted the people who who would have been in court during those trials, to actually be the government of Italy and to continue running Italy, as I said, as a bulwark against what was perceived to be the rising threat of communism. So by a series of, of events, it turned out that no one was willing to support Ethiopia's attempt to take the fascists to court in the same way that the Nazis were taken to court and the same way that the Japanese military commanders were taken to court. That tended to mean that that a curtain of silence fell generally on Italian fascism. And because fascism was, was officially no longer the policy of the Italian government, No one wanted to be reminded that they'd been a fascist. So in the 1950s and 1960s, the government of Italy organized or you could say orchestrated a sort of uh, a creation of myths about Italian fascism, that in fact it had been very benign, that it had even been rather comical. And the Mussolini, uh, you know, shouldn't be taken too seriously. He was a bit of a clown. He was a bit of a buffoon. And really, uh, the Italians never did anything to be, uh, to be ashamed of. And that, that, as I say, was propagated during the 1950s and 1960s and made it very difficult for any Italian historians who wanted to research this period to do their work. Students could not get money to study this subject. Lecturers in universities. Lecturers in universities were let go if they wanted to study what the Italians had been up to. Some professors, like Angela Del Boca, the late professor who specialized in looking at uh, the Italians in Ethiopia couldn't even get funding for his college. So, for all these reasons, we enter the end of the 20th century and the early 21st century with a a curtain of silence almost on uh, the Italians in Ethiopia and Italian colonialism which was basically Libya, Eritrea, and Somaliland. It's only now, with a new generation that's probably coming in with the Internet, that you've got students who are starting to look at this This period. How did
0: the research, editing, and writing process in, in this, involved in this book change you personally? How did you grow personally from the experience you invested? in preparing this book over over the time that elapsed?
1: I think uh, my personal reaction was principally, well, at first it was surprise. Of course, I had no idea. You know, I was like everybody else. (laughs) I, I had no idea what the Italians had got up to in Ethiopia. I mean, I knew that that it had sort of paved the way for Hitler to feel free to do what he wanted to, i.e. that the League of Nations had been disempowered. I I knew that much, but I didn't know much more. So firstly, I was surprised. Secondly, over the years, I felt bad, really, that so many people had died in Ethiopia, at the hands of the Italians, approximately a quarter of a million, and they'd really sort of died in vain. Uh, nothing had ever been been written about them. Nothing had ever been documented. Uh, it, it just seemed incredible to me, and very sad that that should have happened. So I think I was, uh, yeah, you know, you could say I was outraged in a way. To think that uh, so many people had died uh, over a period of years and, uh, and it had been lost to posterity. But secondly, I'd come to be very close to Professor Richard Pankhurst, who I mentioned earlier had a lot of influence on my becoming a historian of Ethiopia. Richard Pankhurst was intimately involved with Ethiopia because, of course, his grandmother was Emmeline Pankhurst, uh, who was a very famous suffragette in England, as was his mother, Sylvia Pankhurst, Emmeline's daughter, was a famous suffragette and a founder of the trade union movement. And she had almost single-handedly led... The international lobby against Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia. She had uh, printed the Ethiopia Times, New Times, and Ethiopia News in her kitchen in England, and had it circulated around the world. Uh, she was a thorn in the side of the British Foreign Office, who were appeasing Mussolini, as I mentioned earlier. And She was a thorn in the side of Mussolini who himself, who had her on his death list. After Ethiopia was liberated, the Emperor Haile Selassie, who had got to know Sylvia Pankhurst very well in exile in Bath in England, invited Sylvia to come and live in Ethiopia as an honoured guest of the country. So she arrived in Ethiopia with her son, Richard, who had been studying at the London School of Economics, Uh, and they lived the rest of their lives in Ethiopia. And Richard had become the foremost and most popular historian of Ethiopia. So he he certainly uh, certainly had a great influence on my taking up uh, the mysteries of Ethiopian history, I worked closely with him, he worked closely with me, he assisted me a lot. So that was also part of the sort of personal side of my research into uh, Ethiopian culture and Ethiopian history.
0: What new information does your book convey about Haile Selassie?
1: Yes, uh, it does actually convey some fairly new information about Haile Selassie. Throughout this period, Haile Selassie was, in fact, outside Ethiopia. He was persuaded by his crown council to leave Ethiopia when the Italians were advancing on Addis Ababa. He had led the army, the Ethiopian army, personally at at the Battle of Maicho at which the Italians were victorious and marked uh, the last major battle in their attempts to conquer Ethiopia. But he was not afraid to go to war, but he did want uh, to go to Geneva with the encouragement of the Crown Council. He went to Geneva to appeal to the League of Nations to appear in person at the League to request loans and armaments from the the members of the League of Nations to enable the Ethiopian army to resist the Italian invasion. Uh, That was turned down, of course. He went into exile in England with the permission of the government, but not, not in his official capacity. He was required to be there more in his personal capacity and not to get involved in politics. He did, however, stay in close contact with the Ethiopian resistance, the patriots. By various means, he was able to send communications and receive communications from Ethiopia to his house in Bath, And what my book shows is that in fact, this attack on Graziani was not just done by two two young Eritreans out of the blue. It was actually orchestrated by a number of Ethiopians who were in the former government of Haile Selassie and was almost certainly encouraged by the emperor himself who requested that a public attack be made on the Italians that would convince the international community that the resistance was still very, very active. Now, the reason he needed to show why the resistance was still very, very active is that he was about to lose his seat at the League of Nations. see, if the League of Nations would recognize that the Italians were now running Ethiopia, then there would be no reason to have the emperor having a seat in the League of Nations. It would be the Italians that would have that seat. So we had to convince the League of Nations and the international community generally that the Ethiopians were still fighting the Italians, although Mussolini had said the war had ended, that in fact it had not ended. So something very dramatic had to be done so that he could retain his seat. In fact, he did retain his seat in the League of Nations. He was successful in that regard. However, the attack on the Italians, of course, had this this, uh, terrible uh, reaction, which which resulted in the massacre of Addis Ababa and many more atrocities following that. The emperor, I think came to be embarrassed that uh, that had been the outcome partly because the generation of Ethiopians that he had had trained in various uh, countries of the world to run the country in the future were to a large extent wiped out by the Italians deliberately so uh, the the end result of that attack on the Italians was perhaps not what the emperor wanted. So, coming back to your question, in summary, yes, it does show that the emperor was much more involved in the affairs in Ethiopia. He didn't didn't run away and then just turn a blind eye to what was happening. He was intimately involved. He tried to intervene in various ways and this was one of the ways in which he intervened. Can you
0: tell the story of Yakatit 12?
1: Yes, Yakatit 12, is the, or Yakatit Asrahulet in Amharic, is the day and the month on which this massacre took place. The Ethiopians have a calendar of their own. Uh, so what we would call the 19th of February, 1937, in the Ethiopian calendar was the 12th day of the month of Yakatit in the year 1929. So the term Yakatit 12, or Yakatit Asruhulet, has come to mean the incident of the massacre that followed the attack on Graziani. So Yakatit 12 basically sums up the attack by the urban resistance on the Italian high command, the massacre that followed, the atrocities, including the execution of the young educated Ethiopians, and the pogrom that started against the Amhara, which came to be almost like a... uh, uh, Like an ethnic cleansing went on for many weeks and months after Yakatit Twelve. And it tends to be all subsumed under the heading of Yakatit 12. So Yakatit Twelve has come to take on an iconic importance in the history of 20th century Ethiopia to the extent that every year on that date there is a very solemn and well-attended celebration which takes place in Addis Ababa around the monument called the Martyr's Monument. This is a great obelisk in Ethiopia which is surrounded by bas-reliefs, the three-dimensional sculptures of the atrocities and the uh, and what happened afterwards of the Yakatit Twelve, this is a monument put up at the expense of Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia in 1955. This is still a very very important monument in Addis Ababa. It's been recently renovated, and as each year goes by, more and more people attend this rather magnificent celebration at which the elderly patriots, who are becoming few in number, of course, who actually fought the Italians, attend. And some of them are around 100 years old now. And the police attend, and all the civic uh, organizations attend, school children attend. They march around the monument, they get dressed up like the the patriots, the partisans. It's a really very moving occasion, and normally either the mayor of Addis Ababa or various other dignitaries of the government attend. And there is a patriots' association, which are is designed to care for the aging uh, members of the Patriot movement that fought the Italians after the uh, military uh, was uh, more or less wiped out by early 1937. They continued to fight the Italians intermittently until 1941. So this is part of what has become the great uh, iconic Yakatit 12 in uh, Ethiopian culture.
0: What was the attitude of Adolf Hitler toward Italy's conduct in Ethiopia?
1: Sorry, what was the, say it again. What was
0: the, what was the attitude of Adolf Hitler
1: towards oh, yes.
0: Italy's yes, conduct indeed. in Nazi Germany?
1: Yes, that's, that's another question with a surprising answer. <clears throat> of course, Mussolini, we give some context here. Mussolini was highly revered by Adolf Hitler. Most people assume that Adolf Hitler started all this business and Mussolini was a junior partner. Well, he became a junior partner, but in the early 1930s, he was seen as a great figurehead by Adolf Hitler, who even had a bust, uh, had a bust of Mussolini on his desk, You see, Mussolini created fascism in 1922. That was many, many, many years before Adolf Hitler came to power with his Nazi movement. To a large extent, Hitler was copying Mussolini. You see, Mussolini had his black shirts. He had his fascists to salute. All this was taken on by Adolf Hitler. Uh, Mussolini had his black shirts who had fought in the First World War and who were very angry about the way that Italy was treated in the peace settlement. They got almost nothing out of fighting in the First World War. Hitler had his, his troops, who the Free Corps, or Freikorps as they were called, who became the stalwarts of Nazism, who had fought in the First World War, and who were angry at what they declared to have been a stab in the back by the Jewish community, as they claimed at the time. So Hitler, when he did his, uh, the famous uh, attempted coup in the Beer Hall, was trying to copy what Mussolini had done with his famous march on Rome in 1922. However, by the time we come to 1937, the relationship is beginning to change a bit. Hitler wants to go into Austria. He still feels he needs Mussolini to join him in what eventually became the Axis. But he doesn't want Mussolini to block his going into Austria. Mussolini regarded Austria as as Italy's business, because Italy has had a score to settle with Austria from the First World War. If you remember Austria at one point had occupied part of what is now what is now Italy. Mussolini didn't want Hitler to go into Austria. So Hitler wanted Mussolini to be tied down in Ethiopia so that he would be free to move into Austria. So he started off by sending guns to help the Ethiopians against the Italian invasion, which was quite an extraordinary state of affairs. Of course, he did it in secret. There was a certain... Uh, Mr. Hall, who was half-Ethiopian and or part-Ethiopian and part-German, who was the go-between between between Hitler's administration and the Ethiopians to try to get support. And he supplied, I believe, uh, anti-aircraft guns at one point to Ethiopia. So at that stage, he wanted the Italians to be tied down in Ethiopia. The Italians, you see, didn't have as much military power as as Mussolini tried to make out. And a great deal of their military was sent to Ethiopia. They didn't have a lot of military power that was not sent to Ethiopia which is why they had to pull soldiers out of Ethiopia to go to Spain, for example. So they were quite overstretched in going into Ethiopia. So um, Hitler was quite happy to see the Italians tied down in Ethiopia. As time went on, of course, the two became closer. You had, for example, the fact that the Protestant uh, Christian missions in Ethiopia uh, were kicked out. You know, the British were kicked out, eventually the Swedish were kicked out, the French were kicked out, but the German Protestant mission was not kicked out. It was allowed to continue, and of course it was protected by the German embassy. So you had that uh, Uh, That that relationship gradually stepping up again during the course of the 1930s, up to the point at which Italy and Hitler then formed the Axis. Can you comment on
0: the damage, destruction and vandalism done by Italy to churches in Ethiopia?
1: Yes, uh, this was something I was not entirely aware of until much later. I'd started off my uh, research by looking into the massacre of Debre Libanos, uh, which was a very, very famous and important Ethiopian monastery dating back to the 13th century. And I had discovered that the Italians had, uh, had massacred the entire congregation of that monastery on a particular day when they were assured that there would be the maximum number of people visiting the monastery on the most important pilgrim's day. I happened to be doing an environmental impact assessment at the time in the area of that monastery. So I became interested in the history of the monastery and what happened during this massacre. I knew that the massacre had been organized by Graziani himself because he claimed that uh, the monks of that particular monastery were involved in the attack. In Addis Ababa, which had triggered the massacre which we've been talking about. But I didn't know at that time that that many, many churches and monasteries had been destroyed by the Italians and the clergy had been executed. This came to light some years later when I was traveling more widely around Ethiopia, visiting other churches and monasteries. And uh, finally, coming across information that was provided by many churches in Ethiopia in the 1940s, after the emperor came back to Ethiopia and his government was restored, in which they gave information as to what happened to those churches during the Italian occupation. And many of these churches were burned down and all the clergy were executed. So when I, when I came to see this, I began to see that there was a pattern. There was a pattern of, of oppression against the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Now, one or two authors who had noted this, including, for example, uh, Mockler, who wrote Haile Selassie's War, the first major book on this subject, he mentioned that Graziani had fallen into a hole uh, in which he could have been killed when he was visiting an Orthodox church early on in the occupation. And that that had caused him to have some sort of mental obsession with the Orthodox Church, and that was true. but in fact it went beyond that because when i studied when I began to study the Italian side of the story, I realized that the Italian Catholic Church had uh, had uh, not only supported but had had actually uh, propagated uh, support for the invasion of Ethiopia had partly uh, had attempted to finance the invasion of Ethiopia, had persuaded Italians to hand over their gold wedding rings to be melted down to finance the occupation of Ethiopia, and had actually declared a holy war, saying that the Ethiopian Orthodox Church were heretics and schismatics, and should be treated accordingly. So there had been a conditioning, particularly of the black shirt volunteers. They had been persuaded to join the invasion of Ethiopia on the grounds that this was some sort of holy war, which meant that if they died, of course, they would go to heaven. So became, I, I came to realize that there was a strong religious dimension to the Italians' uh, behavior in Ethiopia. And because they saw that the spirit of the nation was embodied to a large extent in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which it was, uh, they saw the Ethiopian Orthodox Church as the heart of the resistance. So it was relatively easy to get the black shirts and the uh, and the recruits, the, the military uh, soldiers, to attack these churches, one after another, after another, after another, to destroy the resistance of the local community. And this became a pogrom against the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which in fact is, is the subject of my latest book called Holy War, which we may be discussing on another occasion. Yes.
0: To what degree is Addis Ababa's urban architecture still impacted by the Italian occupation today?
1: Yes. so the, the impact that the occupation had on the physical city of Addis Ababa was much, much less than the Italians intended. The Italians had a master plan under which they would have rebuilt the whole of the city in fascist style, with all sorts of ceremonial uh, highways and so on, and fascist buildings. That never happened for two reasons. One is that the Italians were occupied mainly with fighting the resistance. Secondly, they were only in Ethiopia for five years. So for those two reasons, they, they could never got, uh, you know, get around to rebuilding the city. So it's not in any sense an Italian city as compared with Asmara. Now, if you look at Asmara, which is the capital of an Italian colony of Eritrea, it is a pristine Italian city of the 1930s, one every one street after another, after another, one building after another, is a magnificent example in many cases of fascist architecture. That is not the case in Addis Ababa. However, having said that, two residential areas were constructed by the Italians, one for um, military officers and their families, and one for uh, junior, junior military people, and those two areas have uh, still stand. Although the buildings have been, in some cases, demolished or modified, they also put up a building which became the Ethiopian Ministry of Defence, which is one uh, building in fascist style but the, the main Im- impact that uh, they had on the city was to move the market out from the town centre to the suburbs. Now, that doesn't sound like a very dramatic change, but it was part of the apartheid system of the fascist government. I mean, it was a totally uh, a totally racist-based uh, uh, administration that they were setting up so they didn't want ethiopians in the town center the town center was to be only for whites so the ethiopians who of course went to the market every day and is actually the biggest market in africa uh would have swamped the town center so they moved the market out to get rid of the ethiopians out of the town center the town centre was just for Italians, and the, the market now was outside the city, and that is the way that it still is today. I mean, the market is still outside the city, even though there are very, very, very few Italians left in Addis Ababa. So that that was one change that uh, that, that that they brought about. Apart from that, they didn't change the city a great deal. Uh, you know, much of the the tarmacking was actually done in the 1950s and 1960s under the emperor after he came back. Uh, so yes, it's not a it's not an Italian city or a fascist city in any sense.
0: In what ways did Eritreans suffer differently from Ethiopians under Italy's occupation?
1: Uh, totally different, uh, 100% different, you could almost say. The context is this, that Eritrea was a colony, meaning, you know, a colony is basically uh, a community uh, that that enters a land where there is deemed to be no government, a terra nullius, uh, we can say. Like as Ghana or Kenya, or Tanganyika was deemed to be. There is no, there is no acknowledged government. So a colony of foreigners gets set up in that country and creates the government. Now, there may be resistance when that happens, but it's. Uh, It's usually a a, a limited resistance, and it's a fragmented resistance because there is no central government. So Eritrea was a colony. Eritrea didn't exist as a country. Okay, Eritrea was a buffer zone. It was a coastal strip between Ethiopia and the Red Sea that was traditionally tributary to the Ethiopian emperors but had also been invaded by Turkey and by the Egyptians and various other people from over the centuries. But it was not a country. It was handed over to the Italians by the Ethiopian Emperor Menelik, who didn't regard it either as a separate country or indeed fully part of Ethiopia. It was tributary to Ethiopia, but it had its own, its own uh, leaders and chiefs. So, that was a case of colonization. So, there was less uh, resistance, there was some resistance in Ethiopia, in in Eritrea, but not that much. The Italians were able to put their stamp on the country as the first government, as such, of Eritrea as a separate country. So they made the laws, they made the rules, they set up the government, they set up their army. Every Eritrean had only two choices of career: You either went into farming or you joined the army and fought for the Italians, and that was the system. So they were able to put that stamp in the 19th century on, on Eritrea. Ethiopia was, was not a candidate for colonization. It was a country. It had, it had an Italian embassy. It had an American embassy. It had a British embassy it Had a German embassy. It had an ambassador in Rome, it had an ambassador in London and so on. It had an ambassador in Paris. It had a French embassy in Addis Ababa. It had been a country for thousands of years now. It hadn't hadn't been recognized internationally as a country until the late 19th century, just like Italy. You know, Italy didn't exist as a country until the second half of the 19th century. It was a a series of kingdoms, even though we talk about the Italian peninsula. Ethiopia had been a country for more than 2,000 years. It it was known as the Aksumite Empire, even in pre-Christian times. So it had a government, it had an army, it it had an educational system, it it was a member of the International uh, Postal Union, it was a member of the League of Nations, so, of course, invading that country and trying to occupy it is a completely different story from taking over a land and turning it into a colony. So, of course, there was resistance. And the people suffered much more than they did in Eritrea because they were fighting, like any country that's invaded, You know whether it's the Germans going into Poland or whatever it may be. That people fight back because there's a government there. The other thing is that why we shouldn't refer to the invasion of Ethiopia as colonization is this: that in the 1930s, colonization was perfectly legal. It was a very good thing in everybody's mind in Europe. It was thought to be a very good thing for all concerned. Uh, you know, Missionaries would go out to these countries to do their work, and the soldiers would follow, and the administrators would follow. And this was thought to be good, and it was perfectly legal. Now, to invade a sovereign state was illegal. So in the eyes of the international community at the time, Eritrea was perfectly legal, as was Italian Somaliland and British Somaliland. But the invasion of Ethiopia was not regarded as colonization. And it was because it was an attempted annexation of a sovereign state, which was a member of the League of Nations. So it was two entirely different situations. And the reactions were entirely different, both internationally and nationally. The situations were entirely different. And in fact, the Ethiopians, of course, suffered a great deal. Because, uh, as I say, it would be like any country that's invaded by another country. Take this present situation in Ukraine. The, The Ukrainians are suffering. Why are they suffering? Because they're fighting back because they have an army, so automatically they're in a state of war. Eritrea was not in a state of war. It, it, it was developing as a colony. Ethiopia was in a state of war. And so those, those are the fundamental differences.
0: In what ways were Italy's atrocities in Libya under its occupation interconnected with those that it committed in Ethiopia? Can you comment on the interconnections between these two occupations?
1: Yes. Uh, the Italian uh, in, Italian occupation of Libya is a, is a uh, strange business. I mean, Libya wasn't a colony in the sense that most colonies were created, as I've just explained. It was already part of the Ottoman Empire. So it, it already had a culture, it already had a government, even though it it was, in a sense, uh, I I suppose you could say it was a uh, cross between a protectorate and a dominion, perhaps, of the Ottoman Empire. It had an identity of its own. So the Libyans, of course, really suffered. The Italians went in uh, and occupied the country and then more or less lost control of it. During the First World War, and then had to reconquer Libya. Now, the people who were put in charge of the reconquering of Libya by Mussolini were the same people who went into, who were commanding the invasion of Ethiopia, which is Badoglio and Graziani, the same people. And Graziani's biggest problem was the Cyrenaica which was the eastern part of Libya, which is inland. And the people of Therennica had their own culture. They they were Muslims, in fact. They had their own culture. They had their own ancient ways of doing things. They had their own administration, as indeed did Ethiopia. So, of course, they fought back. Uh, And the way they fought back was not the way that a European uh, country like Italy expected, that they didn't wear uniforms, for example. They would come out of of nowhere and attack the Italians and then melt back into the desert, into their communities. So Graziani's problem was that he wasn't fighting a uniformed army that was lined up to, to fight a battle. In the way that, that, that a European army would expect. They were, in fact, infiltrated in the local communities and they were very difficult to, to root out. So, their problem was one of counterinsurgency. This is what the Italians became very good at in Libya in Somaliland, in Ethiopia, in Yugoslavia, in Greece, was counterinsurgency against largely civilian populations, but who were infiltrated by their own military. Counterinsurgency became what it was all about. So Graziani's approach to this was, in the end, separate the people from the fighters. Because otherwise you will never get the fighters because they're being supported and they're infiltrated in the communities. So he set up massive concentration camps in Cyrenaica. And in fact, he forced the entire population of that country to walk hundreds of kilometers they were death marches in fact into these concentration camps and a huge proportion of the population of that country died these these were some of the most brutal and 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 horrific uh activities of the italian army They certainly compare with anything that, that the germans were came to do in europe under the nazis So the techniques that he developed in Libya of like entering a village, burning the houses, killing the civilians to blackmail the fighters into giving themselves up, all this sort of technique, setting up concentration camps and so on, was copied. It was duplicated in Ethiopia, but on a much larger scale. Even the massacre of Addis Ababa was a larger version of a massacre that took place in Libya after an attack on the Italians. So there was very, very great similarity uh, between what happened in Libya and what happened in Ethiopia. And they were uh, these activities were commanded by the same people The actual, the same military commanders who were in Libya came to Ethiopia. And in many cases, the same commanders who who conducted these activities of of exemplary repression as a technique of counterinsurgency, again, did exactly the same thing in Yugoslavia. Again, some of the same commanders who were in Ethiopia simply transferred the same technique to to Ljubljana, which was the part of Yugoslavia, which the Italians held, and Montenegro. For example, the the governor of Montenegro, who committed atrocities there, was the same commander, one of the commanders who was in charge in Ethiopia. So this is why we we must not think of Ethiopia as anything to do with colonization. It was part of a pattern of expansionism through a series of countries using the same techniques of counterinsurgency that, in the first instance, were developed in Libya.
0: Can you explain to our listeners the significance of the statistics that you present regarding Ethiopian casualties and deaths? under Italian occupation. What revelations do these numbers convey?
1: Yes, I... I do my best in, in the book that we're discussing to, uh, to do two things. One is to come up with an estimate of how many people died in the massacre of Addis Ababa. As I mentioned earlier, this is this is a sort of revelation in the sense that uh, there's always been debate about how many people died in the massacre. Uh, the estimates ranged from typically from about three <clears> thousand from some of the Italian scholars, to thirty thousand, which was the figure given by the Ethiopian government. For the total number who died in what they called the Graziani massacres when they were negotiating the peace agreement with Italy in the 1940s. Uh, I think I'm the first person to attempt this estimate. My estimate is probably a mean of around 19,200 or somewhere at least between 19 and 20,000 people died. Uh, and I I've, I've built this up by looking at each part of the city in each phase of the, the massacre, cross-checking as much as I can with Italian sources on who was doing what, where, and cross-checking with information on the population density of the city and so on. So my figure there is, uh, I think it's the first attempt that anyone's made to come up with a figure. I don't dispute the Ethiopian figure of 30,000, because I believe that that figure is meant to include those who died in the Yakatit 12 massacres in the secondary towns of Addis Ababa. There were massacres also in towns such as Jima and so on. Wherever Black Shirts were garrisoned, there were massacres. None of these have ever been documented. But we do know from the, some of the biographical and autobiographical accounts that there were indeed massacres in those towns. Now, the other aspect of these statistics Is the number of Ethiopians who were thought to have died in the entire occupation, that is the war of invasion and the occupation itself, the five years. Uh, The Ethiopian government came up with an estimate when they were uh, when they were negotiating the peace settlement of about, I think, 750,000. About three quarters of a million people in all had died. And this is is, uh, a figure which is surprisingly high, but when, when you look at the details, most of the people who died were civilians, which is consistent with the way in which the occupation took its course. Uh, The number of soldiers who were fighting the Italians was probably something more like 200, 250,000 or 300,000 at the most. We know that the Italians killed almost all their prisoners of war. This was a factor that was known, but uh, it's never been much talked about, that the Italians killed their prisoners. It's not surprising, if you look at the telegrams from Mussolini and Graziani, they're very specific that prisoners should be killed. So you had the military largely being destroyed. And that was consistent with Mussolini's instructions, which was to totally destroy the Ethiopian army, not just to win the war but to totally destroy the Ethiopian army which the Italians aimed to do so it's not therefore surprising that you should could possibly have 300,000 Ethiopian soldiers being killed then you you've got another maybe 400 or 4 to 500,000 civilians how could that happen but if you look at the different phases of the occupation It could certainly happen, because it's well documented in the military records of the Italians that they were were bombing with explosives and with poison gas, very large areas of the countryside. In some of the commander's telegrams, like Graziani is explaining how, you know, for so many kilometers not a stone remained not a house remained thousands of rebels as he called them killed and the fact is that they operated by setting fire to the houses with the people inside so yes you start talking about tens of thousands of of people being killed in one major military operation. So I went through these figures as carefully as I could, being a trained statistician. I I try to take care to do this sort of analysis as as best I can. And I do understand uh, the question of certainty and uncertainty and probability and so on. I think that the estimates made by the Ethiopians in the 1940s are probably not far off the mark. But in fact, a massive death of civilians did take place. Perhaps as many as half a million civilians were killed during the occupation of Ethiopia. Some of these people were killed in uh, activities after... Yakatit 12, where the Italians uh, assembled gallows, large numbers of portable gallows, and traveled through the Amhara region of Ethiopia, hanging all the priests and the community leaders that they could find. Again, this is not a secret. They, they took hundreds of photographs of these executions. You can, even today, you can buy them on eBay from Italians who were selling off old family albums. So yes, it was a a real revelation when I realized that these figures were probably correct. And uh, that figure of three quarters of a million deaths compares with the three quarters of a million people who died at the hands of the Croatians under Ante Pavelic and in the concentration camps of that country. Uh, And yes, these things happened, and these are the sort of figures that we have to face.
0: Of the many findings that you reveal in this book, were there any that shocked you the most? Were there any that moved you profoundly? Were there any that you were particularly surprised by?
1: I think, looking back, what surprised me the most, perhaps, was, you see, the realization that these Italian soldiers, and I'm talking now about the, the military, the recruits, the regular army, who committed a lot of the atrocities against the churches, for example, these were young, ordinary Italians. Uh, many of them had never killed anyone in their life. Now, the black shirts tended to be older, and they were often ex First World War and so on. But these were recruits that had no choice to be there. They were young men, often from peasant families in Italy, who'd never been outside their village. And here they are doing the most incredible things. The most terrible atrocities. And they're, they're going back to their church in the garrison to pray uh, after, at, at, at the end of the day. Then they're doing the, ne- the same thing the next day. And I would talk to the Ethiopians who knew these some of these Italians, for example, Ethiopian ladies, wives of important Ethiopians who had been rounded up and sent to prison in Italy and had been held there and who were who were released when uh, Graziani was replaced and came back to Ethiopia, could speak fluent Italian, and they were doing things like reading the letters from home of these young teenage soldiers who were illiterate. No, many of the Italians were illiterate. So they would stand in a queue under the tree and bring their and bring their letter from home to this Ethiopian lady who would who would translate the letters for them because they couldn't read. So I mean they, they would read them in Italian. Okay, so these were poor Italians from peasant families who would not say boo to a goose and yet they were doing these incredible things what was the explanation for this and that, that is the question that has uh, concerned me i think the most over the years and i've come to the conclusion that one of the uh, the reasons for the absolute impunity that these boys uh, exhibited and many of them took photographs of what what they were doing all the photographs we have were taken by Italians not by the victims they were taken by the perpetrators they were conditioned that 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 is the realization they were conditioned by the fascist commanders and by the catholic priests in in italy who encouraged them to do what they were doing, and that they were doing it in the name of God, which is what Cardinal Schuster of Milan actually pronounced in the Cathedral of Milan, that they were doing the work of God in Ethiopia. So I, I think that, that, that was prob- that's been the most uh, surprising and distressing aspect of all of this to realise that uh, the people who are fundamentally good can be made to do the most terrible things, which, of course, is not only true of, Ita- of Italians. I mean, any country, that can happen if you get, you know, the certain type of people in the position of authority and command. Right? So I don't think Italians are, are unique in any sense. But I think that, to answer your question, I think that that was the... The most traumatic for uh, sort of realization that I came to uh, the most disturbing. Yes.
0: What role does Italy's invasion of Ethiopia play in contemporary Italian collective memory? Can you describe its place in Italian film, art, <laughs> television, and political discourse?
1: I would say that there is no Italian collective memory of uh, the Italian occupation of Ethiopia. Uh, What I was saying earlier about the effect of Italy changing sides in the war, and Churchill certainly strongly resisting any attempts to expose what uh, people like Badoglio had done in Ethiopia, And the desire of, uh, under the partisan government, the the desire of the fascists to conveniently forget that there had ever been such a thing as fascism has meant that uh, more or less a veil of uh, silence has been drawn over the years over the Italian occupation of Ethiopia and indeed the Italian occupation of Yugoslavia which was in concert, of course, with the Nazis. Uh, In the 1950s and 1960s, certainly, there was a deliberate uh, attempt by the Italian government to forget, can we say, to forget uh, what had happened under Mussolini And uh, this has has affected uh, education, cultural development, theatre, films. Take, for example, the the few films that have ever been made about the Italian occupation of Ethiopia. The Fascist Legacy, which was made for the BBC, in which uh, some of the people that, that I know in Ethiopia were interviewed in the documentary about the occupation, which also covered the occupation of Yugoslavia. The film was purchased by the Italian government so that, they, so that it could be banned and not shown in Italy. So they, uh, they bought it so that they could control the film so that it wouldn't be shown. In fact, it, it seems that it, it became illegal to show it in Italy. There's a film been made in more recent times financed by Gaddafi about Graziani in Libya called Lion of the Desert. Uh, You can't see that film in Italy. Uh, The Italian government said that that it completely misrepresents the Italians. In fact, I've seen the film uh, and I know a bit about it. And I believe, actually, it's quite fair. I think his portrayal of Graziani uh, is fairly accurate. I think it's um, sympathetic to some extent to the Italians, in that it shows that not all the Italians were of the Graziani mentality. There were those who were not happy with what he was doing in Libya, whether it shows the Libyans accurately, I don't know. Maybe it gives too favourable a picture of Omar Mukhtar, the leader of the resistance. I, I, I don't know. I've not studied it. I've not studied the Libyan case. But really, in uh, in the theatre, in the culture, uh, music, or you know, where, where wherever you look, there's almost nothing. Uh, shining a light on uh, the Italian occupation of Ethiopia. We have, of course, in 2012 this monument being built to Graziani, uh, which became something of a cause celebre, but only because there was so much opposition from Ethiopians, Not, not because there was that much noise made in Italy itself. This is a situation where you have someone using public money in Italy to to apparently become an apologist for fascism, which in theory is against the law in Italy, using public money to erect a sort of quasi-mausoleum for Graziani in fascist style. the argument being that he was being celebrated as a soldier, not as a fascist. Uh, As I mentioned, most of the the noise that was made came from Ethiopians, or people sympathetic to Ethiopia, who said that uh, Graziani was a war criminal, he shouldn't be celebrated in this way any more than, than you would build a monument to, to Göring or or Goebbels, for example. Uh, yeah, um, there's been a certain sympathy there in in Italy. And of course, there was this film made which looks at the monument and also looked at uh, Deborah Libano's and the massacre of Addis Ababa, which is this film called uh, "If Only I Were That Warrior," made by two Italian Americans. It's won one or two prizes from specialized organizations, but it—I mean—it hasn't—it uh, hasn't become a mainstream film in Italy. You have, however, a new generation of scholars coming up looking at the uh, occupation of Ethiopia, for the first time now. You've got quite a few younger people studying uh, the occupation, and you've got lecturers at one or two universities in Rome uh, studying uh, Italian colonialism. Unfortunately, they are studying the occupation of Ethiopia under the rubric of colonialism which gives it, of course, a, a false fig leaf of legitimacy, as if, as if the Italians were going in, in, into an empty place that had no government, you know, with a benign intent. But that's just unfortunate. But in general, coming back to your specific question, there, there hasn't been... Uh, Ethiopia hasn't starred in any collective memory, these subjects are not taught in the schools in Italy, uh, and e- even today, I mean, my books. Uh, what, one of my books, the one we're talking about, is available in Italian, "Il Massacro di Addis uh, uh, Some some people have purchased it. Many people don't don't like it. Uh, probably, you know, a lot of Italians. Most Italians either have no idea about the Italian occupation of Ethiopia or they think the stories are not true. We had a case a few years ago in Addis Ababa where there was an exhibition on at the University of Addis Ababa, a photographic exhibition about the massacre of Addis Ababa. And um, I was asked to supply photographs for this exhibition, which I did. And most of the photos were not at all gruesome. They they showed context, they showed people, they gave a very, shall we say, acceptable uh, sort of portrayal of the massacre of Addis Ababa without overdoing the sort of gruesome side of it. And several groups of Italian tourists complained to the university administration that this exhibition should be closed. They actually had what I would think the gall to march into the office of the person in charge and say, this is absolutely not acceptable. This must be closed. Without giving any reason why it should be closed, and i was told some years ago that the uh, under a former government here that the ambassador of italy at one point asked that, that the marches monument should be removed so how do you explain that is it because it's thought to be an exaggeration that the stories are not true is it because that the people concerned had no idea about it and just think, or they, that it's inappropriate, is really difficult to know. So things have not yet settled down in this respect. So there are, certainly, there are certainly Italian academics whom I know who are very well informed on what happened during the Italian occupation of Ethiopia. But whether their books, get read by the mainstream? Um, Probably not.
0: How has the Addis Ababa massacre been remembered in contemporary Ethiopia? How have the victims of the massacre in particular and Italy's occupation in general been memorialized in Ethiopian culture? Can you comment on their place in Ethiopian art, film, literature, poetry, and other forms of collective memory?
1: Yes, the whole story of the resistance to the italian occupation has become iconic uh, i would say uh, as we know we've now moved from the 20th to the 21st century over the last few decades that i've uh, observed this it has become uh, more and more iconic al- al- almost to the point of being a myth but, of course, it isn't a myth, it's a fact. Uh, it's, yeah, but it, it's become iconic in the sense that it has become a great tradition now. It has become part of the great story of the resistance to the Italian occupation, even to the extent that many nuances are being forgotten, like the fact that most people actually collaborated with the Italians. And they, they had no choice. Uh, and some actually fought for the Italians. So, I mean, there are nuances, as you'd expect in any country, that's invaded by a foreign power. Uh, so the story of the resistance is certainly becoming more glorified than, it, perhaps, it, uh, than perhaps it was at the time. It was actually quite fragmented. And there were great difficulties which the resistance faced. (coughs) But it's become powerful. It's there. You see it in Amharic poetry, it's in the literature, it's in the drama, it's in the documentaries, it's in the films, it's in the annual commemoration, which I talked about at the Martyr's Monument. And the young, uh, several young Ethiopians, now with the Internet, who are getting into uh, films and, you know, videos and so on, uh, are engaging with this subject. So, contrary to what it is in Italy, it's very powerful in the mainstream uh, media, you can say, in all walks of life, in all cultural activities, is there. Along with the Battle of Adwa, of course, where the Ethiopians defeated the Italians in 1896. These have become monumental icons in modern, of modern Ethiopian history.
0: What was life like in Addis Ababa after Italy was defeated?
1: Life was very difficult. Uh, you can see it in the fact that there isn't much around that would remind Ethiopians of the 1940s. The emperor comes back in 1941. He had great difficulties. Firstly, he was embarrassed. that I mean, he, he wasn't here to fight the Italians. He was regarded by many Ethiopians as, as a coward for being outside the country. Which is one of the reasons why he didn't dwell too much on the facts of the occupation. Secondly, the British were administering Ethiopia. Ethiopia was occupied enemy territory. Because we're talking now about the Second World War, you see. The Second World War was still on. so The British were actually running Ethiopia. Even though they recognised, Churchill recognised Haile Selassie as the head of government, but in practice, it was very difficult for him to run the country because the the British in military were in Addis Ababa, telling him what to do. So the first few years were very difficult. In fact, it was a pity, having given a sanctuary to the emperor, the British became very unpopular. Many of the British officers in Addis Ababa were former colonial people from Kenya and wanted to apply the same sort of apartheid views of life that they had lived with in Kenya in Ethiopia, which of course were not at all appropriate because the government was ostensibly an Ethiopian government. Not a white government or a British government, so that that was one problem finally, after w- with the support of Churchill actually in in the end Haile uh, lassie got his way, and he was able to to assume complete control of the country again, but he had to start everything from scratch. Haile lassie put very great importance on education. One of the reasons he didn't have a big army in 1935 was the fact that whatever little money the government had was mainly going on agriculture, education and and health, hospitals. And all his uh, schools, the few schools that he built for secondary education had all been closed by the Italians. Now, if you read the Italian literature, oh, Ethiopia was a colony. They went in to build schools. It's completely untrue. They closed down the schools. No Ethiopian was allowed to go beyond primary level because they wanted to put in the Italians, wanted to put in the Eritrean system. You either farm or you join the Italian army as a soldier. There was no to be no other possibility. Almost all the graduates had been executed. Those who had studied in Europe or Scandinavia or America, most of them had been executed. So he really had to start from scratch again with education. He had to really begin from a zero base. Uh, the only thing that there was was roads. There were roads. They'd not been built for the Ethiopians. They'd been built so that the Italian army could could move around the country, of course. But he had that advantage. There were roads. There were not much in the way of industry, because the British uh, took away a, a lot, both from Eritrea and Ethiopia. The British stripped a lot of the factories and took them out. Of the Horn of Africa, to other parts of the British Empire, because they regarded them as occupied Italian territory, so the poor Ethiopians and the Eritreans were left with almost nothing in the way of manufacturing capacity, so the Emperor was struggling nonetheless he he uh, He concentrated on trying to build an industrial base, because it wasn't a very sophisticated industrial base, but it was a beginning. But life was was pretty difficult. It's only by the time you get into about 1950, 1951, 1952, that you start seeing things like more sophisticated magazines being published, books being published, companies being uh, revived, and manufacturing again. Uh, Yeah, until the the 60s were then the sort of high high point of the emperor's time.
0: As we bring our dialogue today to a close,
1: what are you working on next
0: as your subsequent research? What are you working on now as your current project?
1: Right now, I'm actually working on something quite different in terms of the history of Ethiopia, I'm uh, working on the, the life of the young Prince Alamayu. Uh, Prince Alamayu was the son of the Ethiopian emperor Teodros, who was born in 1861. His father, the emperor, committed suicide when the British army arrived to take back hostages, European hostages, that the Emperor of Ethiopia had held in prison on the top of a mountain. In the the battle that followed, the Emperor committed suicide. His wife died shortly afterwards and their only son, who was six years old when the battle occurred, Alamayu was left as an orphan. Queen Victoria asked that he be brought to England. She rather liked uh, having all sorts of exotic strangers in in her palaces. And she genuinely loved foreigners who were very exotic and unusual, Uh, So Prince Alamayu was brought to England from this sort of semi-medieval setting in which he lived on the top of a mountain with his mother, who was almost a prisoner in this remote uh, place. He was brought to England. Uh, A most extraordinary story. Uh, He was given a state reception when he arrived in England, never having traveled outside this mountaintop, of course, let alone outside Ethiopia. He goes to rugby school. Uh, He's brought up to be an English, young English gentleman. And he he dies of a lung lung disease uh, at the age of 17. In England, in Leeds, which is a city in the north of England. Uh, During his short life, he goes to India. He's brought up in India at one point and Singapore. Uh, He goes tiger hunting with the son of Queen Victoria in uh, Nepal. He has an amazing life. And then he dies, tragically. So it's his life that I've been researching, and I hope to, to finish my book on that subject within the next few months.
0: Thank you for our conversation and dialogue today. It was my humble honor to speak to you and to learn so much from your erudition. I'm absolutely grateful for the time you've spent with me in this talk.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: To our listeners, uh, my name is Ari Barbalat. I am your host on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I have been in dialogue with Ian Campbell, who is an independent scholar and international consultant. We have been discussing his book, The Addis Ababa Massacre, Italy's National Shame, published in London by Hearst, 2017. Thank you.